0: So they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is the word of the Lord.
1: As most of you know, I took a lot of years before I ventured into the book of Romans um, because it's, it's, not, it's not an easy book to get your head fully around. Um, and part of what I want to say this morning is to to really admonish you over the next, the last four or five weeks of what we have shared, to, if you've missed some of that, to, to go to the webpage and. webpage and listen to what we've shared there because what we are doing in these weeks, the reason we're taking such a long stretch here in, in just a few verses is because this is the heart of what Romans teaches. And, and what it is is the premise, really, of the book. And so if you get the premise, that, that doesn't mean that there isn't need to have that premise supported that thesis supported, and that's what Paul does the rest of the book. He gives support for what he tells us in these verses, and we will get to that. We will break it down, but if if you don't get the premise, and then you try to look at the supporting documents without the premise, it's, it's difficult. You, you'll, you'll get the wrong outcome from that. So it, that's why we're taking these weeks. That's why we're meticulously, actually, as we go along, reviewing it, so that you get the premise, you get the thesis of the book, the reason the book was written in hand, and then you can go and, and uh, see how Paul support, supports those arguments that he makes. The, f- the first argument that he made there was that, that God has provided a righteousness, for an unrighteous people. That he provides what he requires, righteousness. And that righteousness centers in the work of his son. And he will will break that down as we walk through the book of Romans, how that can be so, that God can provide what he requires. And uh, all of that will be talked about later but you have to make sure that when you read the words for I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes for in it the righteousness of God is revealed that you understand what, what he's saying what he means the righteousness of God being revealed what he is saying is God has revealed a way that we can have what he requires a righteousness a perfect righteousness and, and then we went on to talk about how Paul would, would not be turned from that premise. He was not going to be shamed or silenced. As, as foolish as what he was sharing might sound to the natural man, Paul was not going to be dissuaded. Even though Paul was greatly learned, he, he had credentials, he had letters after his name. The message that he was proclaiming could be understood by everyone. Everyone. You didn't have to be an intellectual to understand it. That the message he's portraying, and and so then many, many a natural man scoffs at it. It, It's the simplicity of it and, and rejects it. But Paul would not be dissuaded, he would not be ashamed into silence. He heralded the message. And the reason he heralded the message is because he knew how incredibly important that message was. And that's what we've been doing the last couple of weeks where we turn to verse 18. And it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And we talked about four different ways Four different ways in which that wrath is, in fact, even now being revealed in our world. It's, it's how you can make sense of a broken world. It's because God's wrath, his, and we define what wrath is, it's not the wrath of man out of control, but it's the wrath of God, and it's God's hatred toward sin, his, his sense in which he detests sin. Um. His, his, his response to sin, that's what his wrath is. And because of that, um, it, it is being revealed, his, his displeasure with it in multitude of ways, three of which we talked about the first week, that, that universality of death, that death comes to all men. Um, It is no respecter of persons. The second one is that creation has been subjected to futility. Again this week, I hope when life didn't go as you wanted it to go, your first response was not to shake your fist, but your first response was to recognize that's just a, a, a symptom of what sin has caused in our world, that futility. Creation was subjected to futility by God because it was subjected in hope. In hope, and thirdly, the downward spiral of man's thinking and behavior. This the downward spiral of natural man's thinking and behavior. If, if you thought this week, how can that be? That's one of the results of the wrath of God being revealed. The downward spiral of it, and then last week, as as we talked about in our prayer time, we we stopped a minute and said, how many of you thought of this one the first week? How many of you thought, stop, you left out the most important one? You left out the, the apex of God's wrath being revealed. And, and there certainly probably were some who might have felt that. But we have to be honest, I think all of us, that oftentimes we, we don't. We, we run it through us. The, the first three were about us. We run them through us. That it, it affected us with universal death. It affected us to have to live in the futility of a broken world and the downward spiral of thinking and behavior and all of that that we're involved in in our world. And we see and we think, God, as I said in, in our prayer time, isn't that a bit much? And then we left out the one that was the most most egregious in that sense. What this table represents to us. That that was the apex of where God's wrath was revealed from heaven. When it was perpetrated on the Son. When the scripture says, I mean, it, it doesn't soft-pedal it. In Isaiah 53, when Isaiah foresaw the suffering servant and he said, it was the will of the Father to crush the son. I think it does no disservice to the text to say it. there was a part of the father who was pleased that the son was crushed because of his wrath toward sin, his hatred of sin. And it goes on to say he put him to grief. Other translations say it caused him to suffer, put him to grief. I, I hope that we're seeing that 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 is incredibly significant to see, that that's the apex of that wrath being revealed from heaven. It's why why responding to that is so essential. It's why you can't take it or leave it. God didn't take it or leave it. He poured it out on his son. And my hope is that we see that. And it helps us to greatly or much greater appreciate the love of God. In fact, one of the statements that we said in those two weeks is you, you don't really understand the love of God. You don't until you understand the wrath of God towards sin and that that wrath was poured out on his son. Don't soft-pedal what happened to the son. It was horrendous because of the sinfulness of sin, the sinfulness of our sin. And now we go on to just another little segment, and that's what we want to do this morning of that particular verse. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That statement there, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Let's break it down. I just want to break that statement down this morning and make some comments about it, and then we're going to come to the table. First of all, it's, it, it could read this way, I think. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And, and so you could say, men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. It's referring to men. What, what does it mean when it says men, men? Who does that include? It includes the whole human race. It includes everyone, it includes us, everyone everyone have been guilty of this. All men have been guilty. And apart from God's mercy, we continue to be guilty of it fully. Apart from God's mercy, that is exactly where the natural man lives, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. That is really the, the, the crux of the matter, and it is, It chains to all men. The scripture says in Romans chapter 3, again, be reminded, it says, none is righteous, no, not one. None is righteous. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. All of us, all of us fit into that camp at one time. That's, That's really a description of, in unrighteousness, suppressing the truth. That's how it manifests itself. It's what it looks like as it happens. But the question is, what truth? What truth are they suppressing? What truth is being pushed down and suppressed? Again, we go, I think, to the book of Romans, chapter 1, and you just kind of read on. We'll, we'll spend more time in these verses, but they're commentary on that particular statement right now. Look at them in verse 19. It, this is what it this is what it's talking about. This is a truth that is being pushed down and suppressed. In verse 19, it says, What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. That's the truth that's being suppressed right there. The truth about God. The truth that there is a God, capital G. Capital G, not small g, capital G. A God who is supreme over all small g's that people want to make up or come up with. There is a God because it says this God is the creator. He's the creator and and his eternal power and divine nature have been evident from the beginning. And the scripture is telling us that that is the truth that is being suppressed. That we have a creator, a God, a capital G, who is eternal in his power, divine in his nature, and because he is our creator, he owns us. That That is the truth that gets suppressed. And and then it goes on to tell how that manifests itself. How does that suppression manifest itself? And you go on to verse 21, and you begin to read these words. It says, For although they knew God, who knew God? Those men. All men. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God, nor give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Two things, two ways it manifests itself. They don't honor him or they don't glorify him, would be another way to say it. Other translations was they did not glorify him or give thanks to him. They didn't honor him as God, they didn't give thanks to him. They lived in ungodliness and unrighteousness. They suppress that. And what ungodliness is, is to, to not retain a knowledge of God. Part of what ungodliness is, is a refusal to retain a knowledge of God. A refusal to glorify and give thanks to Him. If you're going to define what God, uh, Godless, uh, God ungodliness is, that would be those things. It would be no knowledge of God, to not retain a knowledge of God and to not glorify and give thanks to Him. And then it goes on to say what they did instead in verse 22, if you read on. In verse 22, it says, Rather than do that, they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So there's a picture of what it means to suppress the truth. They exchanged God-worship, in essence, for self-worship. They exchanged God-worship for self-worship. Instead of putting God in the center, they put man in the center. And and something happened. Something happened. Something God allowed something to happen. Look at it there in the text. It says, when they did that... Um, Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts. There's a sense in which God then let them go in that futility. Their minds were further darkened. 2 Thessalonians describes what happens when you live in ungodliness, when you don't retain a knowledge of God. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 10 to 12, it says this. Let me begin at verse, actually verse 9. It says, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. That's speaking of natural man. If he stays in that state of natural man, he's perishing. And then it goes on, because, this is why, this is why he perishes, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. They refuse to love the truth. They refuse to retain a knowledge of God. And the way it shows that you retain a knowledge of God is you glorify Him and you give thanks to Him. And so ungodliness is the opposite of that. And suppressing the truth, that's the picture of what it is. And in that suppressing, something happens. As they suppress that truth, they come to not even realize. What's going on? They don't even realize they are suppressing the truth of God. That's, that's the progression that happens. They, they scoff and they mock those who do. And I think, I think for a moment in my own life, you think in your life, if, if you today are not a natural man, if you've, if you've embraced Christ and you've come to life in Christ and experienced the mercy of God, and, and are not there, not, not retaining the knowledge of God, which is what suppressing the truth is. Be grateful for that. Be grateful for that. I, I, as I was preparing this message today, I thought, God, where would I be? Where would I be had not at the age of 18 you opened my eyes to see the glory of the gospel of Christ? I shudder to think where I would be. I shudder. And sometimes I see others, others who would, would mock God, who would mock the truth, who would, would go there, and I think that's exactly where I would be. That's exactly where I would be. I'm convinced that had God not intercepted me, that's where I would be. And so it shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't surprise us that the things that happen around us. We'll we'll talk about some of those. We'll walk through some of the ways that's manifesting itself in this text. But it is just a progression that happens when when you suppress the truth, when you push it down. It's interesting here. It says men who suppress the truth, but but it also says, by their ungodliness, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Ungodliness, unrighteousness suppress the truth. Why do men do that? Why do they suppress the truth in unrighteousness? Is it because they can't understand the truth? Is it because they don't understand what we are telling them? when we tell them the gospel? I don't think so. It, it, is not, it is not a mental problem, ultimately, that causes that. But it's rather a moral problem. It's a problem of a natural man's heart. Um, let, me, let me explain what I mean by that. R.C. Sproul wrote a book a number of years ago. It was entitled The, the Psychology of Atheism. Another title that they changed it later is is If There's a God, Why Are There Atheists? That was the second title to the same book. But Spohl's premise is that atheism has nothing to do with man's supposed ignorance of God, Romans 1, because Romans 1 tells us what can be known about God can be clearly seen from what he has made. So it it, it isn't ignorance of God, but rather with mankind's desire of him. People do not know God because they do not want to know Him. They don't want to retain a knowledge of God. That's what suppressing the truth is. I don't want to retain a knowledge of God. Um, he goes on to write this. He says the New Testament maintains that unbelief is generated not so much by intellectual causes as by moral and psychological ones. The problem is not that there is insufficient evidence to convince rational beings that there is a God but that rational beings have a natural antipathy to, to the being of God. In a word, the nature of God, at least the Christian God, is repugnant to man. It is repugnant to natural man. That's why they reject it. That's why people reject the gospel. That's, that's where I could be. That's where all of us could be outside of the mercy and grace of God, outside of of hearing the gospel and God opening our eyes to see it. And it shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't surprise us because God is repugnant to natural man. And he goes on to tell four ways in which that happens, four ways in which God is repugnant to natural man, four ways in which they suppress the truth because they don't, want that god first one is that god is sovereign to be god capital g means god is sovereign definition of god is he is sovereign over all things that's that's what the definition of god is men don't like that we want to be sovereign ourselves we we don't want limitations isn't that what happened to adam and eve in the garden What did they rebel against? Limitations. They didn't want to be limited. They could have everything to the north, south, east, and west of the tree. Whatever they wanted, whatever their hearts desired. But there was a limitation, and that was the tree. That was the fruit of the tree. And and there is something in us, something in natural man that does not want limitations. Limitations. We want to be God. That's suppressing the truth. It's why we suppress the truth outside of God's mercy. Secondly, they, they don't want a holy God. Not only is God sovereign, the God of Scripture sovereign, but He's holy. Isaiah, we looked at the text this morning where He said, I'm a man of unclean lips and a people of unclean lips. Woe is me. He saw God, he saw God as holy, 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 holy is the Lord Almighty. And natural man doesn't, doesn't like that, wants to recoil from that. Natural man doesn't, doesn't want that kind of a God. There's something because of our sin that causes us to, 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 to in some ways be attracted but to be repelled from that idea of holiness. A a picture of that, a number of years ago, there was a story, you've probably heard it, but Billy Graham was playing golf with some individuals. And uh, they walked all the way with his foursome or whoever he was playing with, and after it was all over, one of the golfers came into the clubhouse just ranting and raving and saying, I'm never gonna play golf with him again. I don't want anything to do with him, that kind of thing. He was all upset. And somebody just asked him, what did he say? And he said nothing. He didn't say a thing. It was, it was this, the attachment that Graham had to a holy God. Not that Billy Graham would claim to be holy, but even the attachment of it caused this man to be undone. There was something in that that caused him to re- be repulsed from it. And... and that's the way it is with God. There's a, there's a repulsion about the holiness of God, partly because we realize we're not. But it's part of that suppression. The third way in which people suppress the truth of God, the reason they don't want that God, is because he's an omniscient God. They know that nothing passes his gaze. They just instinctively know that this God sees everything. And, and we like the darkness. But the darkness is not dark to him. He sees it. He sees everything. And so the idea of sovereignty, the idea of him being holy, the idea of him being omniscient. And then, finally, he's immutable. He's immutable. And what that basically means is he's unchanging. He is, he is locked into being sovereign. Sovereign. He is locked into being holy. He is locked into being omniscient, and that will never change. He will never waver from those things. And so those four things together, natural man is, is pushed away from that, and he, he pushes that idea of God away, and, and many times pushes it away to such a degree that he doesn't even know he's pushing it away. It's what the scripture text tells us. And so many people today who are out there who would not claim to be Christian and, and things they say and things they do, and you think, how can that be? It's part of that attempt to push God out, to have no knowledge of God in their life. We will have no sovereign over us, natural man. But the sad part of that trajectory which is true of all natural men. It's not that they don't know there's a God. They do. But they don't like that God and therefore they try to suppress that truth in their life. But the the tragedy is of it as they suppress God being sovereign, God being holy, God being omniscient, God being immutable, they also push away the fact that God is merciful. God is a merciful God. God is a merciful God who, in all eternity, planned a way to reconcile that one who wants no knowledge of him to himself. And the way that he chose to reconcile them was what's represented to us in this table this morning. And so when people push away God, they also push away what this table represents to us. And this morning, I hope that that's not the case in your life. I hope the reason we are here this morning is because we realize that this is our hope. This is our hope. What this table represents to us this morning is our hope that, yes, God is sovereign. Yes, God is holy and demands perfect righteousness. Yes, God is omniscient and knows every sin that you've ever committed or will commit. And yes, this God doesn't change in his wrath toward that. But the beauty of the good news of the gospel of Christ is that for those who also because God has caused them to see the glory of the gospel in the face of Christ. Also see that Jesus bore that wrath for them. I hope this morning, and really that's the invitation, if you see that, if you see that Christ has borne the wrath for your sin, come believer, eat. Experience the goodness of God. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful that we can come to this table this morning. We're grateful, Father, for what it represents to us. That we, we who are sinners, can be reconciled to a holy God. That Christ bore the curse for us that it pleased the Father to crush the Son for our sake. Lord, we rejoice in that this morning. We thank you for that. And we pray, Lord, that we'll be strengthened by it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like for those that are going to help us serve this morning to come. We'll distribute the elements in the pew this morning. They'll come to you, and if you can live under the invitation both in your bulletin and what I shared this morning here at the close. We invite you to take and eat and be grateful for all that Christ has done. This represents the body of our Lord. And uh, one of the things that Christ did for us, the scripture says very plainly, he became a curse for us Scripture says, Cursed is he who hangs on a tree. And he was. He bore the curse for us that we do not bear it. That's the hope we have in Christ. I ask for you to take the element and hold it. We'll partake together. In uh-huh. invite you this morning to take and eat and be grateful that Christ has borne your curse. Jesus declared, this is the new covenant in my blood. And it was inaugurated again by Christ bearing the wrath of the Father for us take and hold or take together. of the book of Hebrews put it this way when he said by a single sacrifice he Christ has made perfect forever that's that righteousness that comes to us we're made perfect forever even as we're being made perfect God is conforming us more and more to the image of his son but We have the righteousness of Christ that we can call our own. That's what's been revealed. That's what Christ did when he bore the wrath on the cross for us. Take and drink and be grateful. Let's stand together in benediction. Now unto you, Lord, who is able to present us spotless, as Jude said, before the presence of your glory. Oh, Lord, what an amazing thing. What an amazing thing that you provide for us, what you require. May we go today in that hope. In Jesus' name, amen.